I needed to tell this story clearly. I needed to write it, and then I needed to share it. This is Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read a true story of personal daring. Then we talk about writing and life. I am Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. One of the biggest questions that comes up in most of the memoir classes that I've been in is the one about that critic editor voice in our heads. The one that stops us before we even start. Oh, she says things like, you can't say that, or what if so-and-so were to read this? It's usually not that we can't imagine a thousand people reading our words. It's more that there's just one or two people that loom over us. How dare you, they may say. How dare you speak those words? Maybe we fear something much more threatening. Revenge, retaliation, retribution, bad karma. Or maybe the fear of something as seemingly small as a hurt look on someone's face and a deepening spread of some malignant silence. Better to hold hurt than to inflict it. One piece of advice I've heard on this topic before is from Ann Patchett on a podcast she was on one time. She said, No one cares. Write what you have to write. No one cares. She also said that she does not speak ill of the dead, so that's another side of her perspective. But the observation of no one cares resurfaced through the voice of a writer friend of mine recently who had an article published. She felt the same way. Look at our world, or at least this contemporary Western culture slice of it. A mad rush of content comes at us every day, more than anyone could ever absorb. We may try to get our work out there, and then you get an acceptance, and there's your one day, your one hour maybe, with your inspired, hard-crafted words that you have put out there. It lands, and then what? No one cares. Well, that's not always true, I know. But on one hand, this is true. And with this perspective, I think the point is, then why not write or speak the deepest truth within your heart? The words, the experience, the perspective that only you are uniquely poised to say. Because if you do, maybe, just maybe, your words will reach someone who really needs to hear them. The essay that you will hear today is written by Margaret Mandel, a voice who reached out to me after reading a post I had had in Brevity Blog, which is a daily craft essay about writing memoir that if you don't know about it, you should absolutely check it out. Margaret Mandel has a memoir coming out in 2024 called And Always One More Time. The essay she's going to read was written in the course of writing that book, but didn't make it into the memoir. As you will hear, it works very well as a standalone piece. And I will say, when I first started reading this, it scared me so much I did not want to continue. The last time that happened to me, I was about 12 years old and decided I would start reading Stephen King's The Shining. I'm not sure why I decided that, but... I quickly just stopped. I never finished that book, but I did make it to the end of Margaret's essay, and I was glad that I did. It stuck with me the following day and the day after that, and so I knew I had to speak with her. So I am very pleased to introduce you to Margaret Mandel. Thank you, Michelle. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> it is my pleasure. 
And it is my pleasure to have read the piece that you're going to be reading for us. We have an essay today. But before we get to that, I do like to talk with people about their writing journey. And we have only just met, so I don't know that much about you. I do know you have a memoir coming out in early 2024. Is that correct? Yeah. That is correct. All right. Tell me a little bit about your writing journey where that began for you? Practically at birth or when I was able to actually handle pen and paper. Yeah. I became a storyteller, a letter writer. I kept diaries. I wrote poems. I wrote songs, song lyrics. Oh, nice. I just always loved language and words. But I never worked professionally as as a writer, as a creative writer, a copywriter, or any of the writing professions. I wrote a great deal in my jobs, but it was to some other end, not mm-hmm. for the writing itself. What sort of writing was that? I was a director of admission for a prep school for 20 years, and I had to write many, many reports, acceptance letters, rejection letters. I got very, very good at acceptance and rejection letters. Um, That's an important skill. Very. Yeah. The rejections are especially hard. Rejections took me 10 times as long as the acceptance letters, even though they were just one page. And the acceptance letters were like five pages. Yes. I sweat over every rejection thing I ever write. Yes. Yes. We don't we don't like to say no. We don't like to hurt people's feelings. I know. Because we know what it feels like when we get that rejection. I know. We, we do. We know. So I always love and I, f- I do find that with so many people writing in childhood in some capacity as play is so pivotal and just kind of like part of who we are. And I love hearing that you wrote songs. Tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, I played piano and just loved music. And I think there's, there's a musicality to language, you know, rhythm and rhyme and beat and cadence. And I just really enjoyed that writing lyrics to songs where you have to put syllables to notes yeah and uh, you're, you're actually writing in some kind of a, of a meter yeah I just enjoyed the musicality of that right you may or may not know this about me but I learned how to play the piano when I was young and it turns out there's a funny little story I think it was either the day or very close it must have been a Christmas gift that I got my first diary. It was called My Diary. It was yellow. Each page was one date. Well, my very first entry in my little diary says, I learned how to read music today. <laughs> and I thought, how funny, because those two things are tied together for me, too. Now, mm-hmm. I did not become... <laughs> very good in playing the piano. I, I was a singer. I loved, I loved music and I knew I wanted to be involved with music somehow, but not in any performance capacity. But I love hearing that you wrote songs. That's a whole other thing. Do you remember any of them? Of course I do. Of course you do. Would you dare to tell any of the songs that you wrote? What they're about? Any of your lyrics? Um, I was one of those kids who fell hard in love with people, Uh, particularly in my teenage years. I got crushes on people, counselors, teachers. Mm -hmm. I was besotted, crush besotted. (laughs) So I wrote love songs. And in particular, I wrote a love song for the dean of students in my school. Now, I was in an all-girls school and all the teachers were women, but the dean was a guy. <laughs> so he was your in your spotlight. And I decided he was there for me. Mm-hmm. Nice. 
That's so great. I, I, I wrote the song, and but then I performed it in the auditorium, accompanying myself on the piano. Wow. So I sang this song, and, you know, like 40 years later, 50 years later or more, my classmates still remember it. They remember the words. We sing it together. Do you want to share them? No. <laughs> okay. You don't have to. That is not what you are here to divulge today. So that is totally fine. And I I just love that story. That is great. So do you play the piano still? I, I haven't played in a long time. I, I can play a little bit still. Yeah. But yeah. My husband is the musician in our house. And so we do have a piano and actually not that long ago. I also work in a used bookstore. So we got a copy of this Rodgers and Hammerstein songbook that was the one that was one from my piano lessons that if I can play anything, I mean, very badly, I will add, but like, those are the songs I remember. So I have been sitting down and plunking out Oklahoma and uh, yeah, it's very fun. And it is those things that we do and create in childhood stick with us so moving forward what has been your sort of creative writing endeavors later later on whenever you want to pick that up again be that with your memoir or anything else you've done well it it was the letter writing and the journaling yeah that it turns out was so important to me because seven years ago, my husband died and I was encouraged to start writing to help me process my grief and mourning. I was told, you you really do need to write. And I was resistant at first because I was just so sad. I didn't know if I had the energy to mm-hmm. write. Yeah. Also, I was busy writing many, many thank you notes and acknowledgments to, to all the people who wanted me to know how sad they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was wonderful, but I acknowledged every card, every phone call, everything. And I was busy writing those. Yeah. But then I was told that I should try writing for myself. So I signed up for a writing class with an amazing woman by the name of Jennifer Shelter, who was my yoga teacher, was a yoga teacher, but also a writing teacher. So I went to her, oh. I went to her class and she gave us some writing prompts. And I didn't realize at the time, but she was introducing us to the fundamentals, the building blocks of memoir. And she would give us homework assignments. And one day the assignment was, starting tomorrow, I want you to write for 10 minutes every day, just write. Mm. And that very same day, I got a phone call from a dear cousin of mine who lives halfway around the world and said, I just read a book that I want to share with you. It's by a friend of mine whose husband just died. And she wrote a love letter to him every day. And the next morning I sat down to do my homework for the writing class. Yeah, And I wrote my first love letter to my husband. Isn't it interesting how those things can converge and create something out of that? It was a convergence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was meant to be. Yeah. And I never stopped. I mean, I literally wrote wow. every single day for four years. Wow. I filled 14 books with these letters. Wow. And did Assuming they- no one would ever see them. Yeah. But then I wanted to read them to people. I wanted to share them. So I started sharing a few of them with family members, friends, my kids. Mm-hmm. And I went to a writing class, actually a writing retreat, a year after. This is a year after Herb died. And the teacher was Jennifer. And we were invited to read our work aloud. And I picked a letter and I read it aloud in class. And she took me aside afterwards and she said, oh, there's such a love story there. This has to be a book. You know, I just love the idea of letters so much. I feel like it's almost a little bit of a lost art. I mean, when I was a kid, that's 
I wrote letters to my friends. I mean, sadly, I don't have a lot of them, and I really regret that. But I have friends who have showed me the letters we wrote. and It's your living history. It's a record of what you were thinking, who you were at the time. Yeah. It's It's a record of your development. Yeah. It does capture a moment in time. It's why I'm a journaler, too, because I feel like... I have a terrible memory. And if I don't write down (laughs) XYZ happened today, I'm sort of in my own little grade school world of today, I did this, you know, at least to kind of remember what's going on. And then of course, there's the processing of feelings, which is a whole other thing, especially in relation to grief. But the love letter to a spouse you have lost. That is really something. Were they the same length every day? I'm, I don't know why I'm curious about the length. Like were some very short. So great. Um, I have this thing about if I start a page, I'm going to write to the end of the page. Mm, Yes. I like that. (laughs) No white space. (laughs) Yeah. And I get to the end of the first page. If I have more to say, and if I have time, I turn the page, but then I'm committed to filling a whole nother page. Right, right, right. And I keep going. So some of them, you know, if I'm in a rush, I would write every morning early, really early, like mm-hmm. 4.30. I would get up at 4.30 and my day would not start without this letter. Yeah. Of course, there was coffee or tea involved, but. Yes. <laughs> I always. know those are the necessary ingredients. Cup always. Coffee, journal, pen. This is Best my, time of the day. My favorite type of pen, too. I don't know if you have a favorite pen. Uh, pilot pilot yeah. pen. It has to be a pilot pen. Black pilot pen. So, yeah, it was a ritual. It was a routine. And, yes, they were of different lengths. Were they all over the map? Absolutely, because I was, my life was, my life was in kind of chaos. And yeah. I never knew what I was going to say. That's the beauty of either journaling or writing letters you don't think anyone is ever going to see. You can say whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a language with the person you are communicating with. Right. You can talk in insider language code. So I think what happened is that these letters have become your memoir. Is that correct? They are. Yeah. However, the memoir itself is no longer mostly letters. Right. It's been transmuted into a story based on the letters. There are letters in there, but most of the chapters are creative nonfiction. They're narrative. And I can only imagine that was a ton of work to transform them in a way that goes from letter to narrative what was that like, transforming them? A ton of work might be an understatement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is arguably the hardest thing I've ever had to do to revise and rewrite and revise and rewrite and work with coaches because I had to. Jennifer became my first coach. After that initial suggestion by her that I write a book, I went away for several years and just kept writing the letters. And during COVID, I called her up and I asked her if I were to transpose all these letters, and these were handwritten in journals, onto my computer into a manuscript, would she be my first reader? Mm. And I really didn't even know what I was asking of her other than to read them and tell me what she thought. But she took that on and became my memoir writing coach and got me to read some of the best memoirs out there, written textbooks about the mm-hmm. writing of memoir. Mm-hmm. She gave me reading assignments. Read this, read this, read this. You have to read this. If you haven't read this, you don't know what memoir is. Mm, yes. And one of the books she assigned to me very early on was a book called Handling the Truth by Beth Kephart. Memoirist and writing mm-hmm. teacher, which was a transformative experience for me because I learned I really had no idea what memoir was until I read that book. Hmm. And I 
worked for 19 months with Jennifer. We had many Zoom sessions and editing sessions. It was in the middle of COVID, so we were all working from mm-hmm. in right. quarantine. We were in confinement. And I had to let go of 265,000 words of my 300,000-word manuscript. I had to give up so much. Yeah, yeah. And it became the metaphor for my life because I was still trying to let go of my husband. Yeah. And now I'm letting go of so much that I wrote to him, for him, and about him. Right, right. In order to get to that white, hot center of the story. Wow. I can't wait to read that story. It sounds really powerful and um, like a ton of work and a ton of heart processing along the way. To get us up to what you're going to read today, out of, what did you say, 217,000 words that you let go of? Almost 2,000 of them are here. So this is an excerpt that got booted, a darling that was excised from the memoir in progress. So what was the inspiration for this piece for you when you got it to the to the form that we're going to hear today? Well, this piece was just uh it was uh, an entry in my in my journal about something that happened to me and was happening, you know, in real time as I wrote about it. So, you know, I would go in every day and describe what was going on. The story that I'm going to read today, it was an event that happened three years after I had already been a widow. I had already been through so much. I actually, at the time that this happened, I thought I was kind of doing pretty well. Um, Just when we feel like I, I thought, you know, I'd come through and yeah. I was going to be okay. We're on I thought I was going to be okay. Yeah. Firm ground. Just when you think. Um, so this happened, and I and I, um, I of course wrote about it. So it was in the letters, but it was also kind of a standalone story. It didn't have to be part of anything bigger or part of a memoir. It sort of stood on its own terms. It was okay that it could be a book-adjacent essay as opposed to in the book. Right, right. But it happened. And I wrote about it, and I reflected upon it, and some of my reflections were then incorporated into the story. So as it was happening, I was thinking things. Yeah. I was observing my own responses and my own behavior and my own thoughts, Mm -hmm. and they are folded into the story. So it's a narrative with, you know, little thought bubbles going on from time to time, which is, I guess, an element, you know, of self-reflection and self-disclosure that you would expect to find in a diary or a journal, something really intimate and personal and almost a confessional. I will vouch very much so. Yeah. So Margaret Mandel will read her essay. Whenever you are ready, Margaret, have at it. I believed you. Maybe it was because I was lonely. Maybe it was because I've always been afraid of computers, afraid to make a mistake, ashamed that I'm not more tech savvy. Maybe I just needed to prove I could manage after my husband died. It all started with an email from iTunes. Your credit card has been charged with $31.98 for your purchase of Avenger 1 and Avenger 2. If you did not make this purchase, click below to cancel. I clicked. Account verification needed. Enter Apple ID and password. Click. Enter your name and address. Click. Enter your date of birth and social security number. Click. Enter your credit card number. Click. Enter your bank account routing and account number. Click. Take a photo of the front and back of your driver's license. Click. Take a photo of yourself holding your passport. Click. Account verification 
complete. I called Dan, my tech-savvy son. Is this a scam? Of course, Mom, he groaned, firing off instructions in a staccato voice. Cancel your credit card. Close your bank account. Get a new passport. Change your Apple ID password. Report this to the Federal Trade Commission. In a panic, I scrambled to do all these things, feeling like I was the child and Dan was the parent, and if I did these things, I would be a grown-up again. I wanted more than anything to be the grown-up I thought I was. Suddenly, my phone rang. This is Apple security calling. Suspicious activity has been detected on your device. For assistance, please stay on the line. My name is Lee Hook. How can I assist you? Thank God for these tech-savvy guys, I thought. I didn't want to bother Dan again. I told Lee Hook what happened. I am so sorry to hear that, he said, voice as smooth as silk. I couldn't place his accent. I felt soothed. If you give me control of your device, he continued, I can assess and repair damage. I gave him control and watched him open my files, my email, my family photos, my documents. He sighed. This very, very serious. Your device, badly infected with worst kind of virus. Hacker, much smarter than Apple, invades your computer and has access to everything. Online banking, credit cards, email, social media accounts, iPhone, even IP address. Oh, God, I said, pretending I knew what an IP address was. She is very pretty. Is she your daughter? I knew he was looking at my screensaver, a picture of my daughter at her wedding. I hesitated, wondering what that had to do with repairing my computer. Maybe he's just being friendly, I thought. Yes, I said. For security reasons, I must ask, who lives with you? Who has access to your devices? No one. Good. I can help you. We must act quickly. Your computer is shooting viruses into the hard drives of other Apple customers, infecting all of them. Oh, God. Let's get started. First, I verify credentials, explain process. I watched him upload onto my screen a list of senior security advisors at Apple with the name Lee Hook, third from the bottom. That's me, he said, swiping the cursor along his name. I saw the familiar Apple logo at the top of the page. I wondered what he looked like. I watched him upload a sequence of scans with repeating spikes. The graph was moving across my screen in real time like my husband's EKG the day he died. Each spike is a virus infecting your computer, he explained. We use these diagnostics to pinpoint and remove virus. I saw so many pointy spikes, dozens, piercing the top of the graph. They kept getting closer together. I watched him upload a mugshot of a criminal hacker with the word Interpol at the top of the page. His face looked jowly, head shaved, eyes menacing. The print under the photo appeared to be in Russian. We're looking for this guy, he said. He is wanted all over the world. Is that guy in my device? I asked, shuddering. Is he working from Russia? Don't assume. International criminals can operate from anywhere. But don't worry, Apple will block hacker and diagnose and remove these powerful viruses. We require special tools, which can only be found encoded on back of Google Play cards. On the back of what? I thought I could hear him rolling his eyes. Am I the only one in the world who doesn't know what a Google Play card is? I show you, he said. He uploaded a picture of a Google Play card onto my computer screen. You must get into your car right away. Seriously? Get in my car? And drive to nearest supermarket to purchase two $500 Google Play cards. $500? $1,000? Apple will reimburse you as soon as work is done, he said, reading my mind. Okay, I said. He showed me where I lived on Google Maps with directions to stores in my area that sold the cards. 
wow, he really knows my neighborhood. I grabbed my car keys and ran out to my car. Keep me on phone, he said as I pulled out of the parking lot, following the GPS directions to the supermarket. And do not tell them why you want card or they charge you more money. As soon as you leave store, take coin, scratch back of card, and read numbers to me. Okay, I said, hoping I could find the cards once I entered the store. They were next to the batteries. Outside, I read him the numbers. He repeated them back to me. Good, he said. Our technicians will get to work. I'll call you tomorrow. The next day, he called at 1 p.m., 10 a.m. in Cupertino. I knew where Cupertino was. My son Dan went to college near there. Gorgeous campus. I miss my son. Talking to Lee Hook was like talking to Dan without bothering him. For the rest of the week, I waited expectantly for his 1 p.m. call and the latest virus scans. Hi, it's me, he said, sounding like an old friend. We're getting closer. He sent me out to more remote stores each day to purchase more Google Play cards for increasing denominations of money. More money? Again? But it started to feel like a game, an adventure. The more challenging it became, the more determined I was to keep going. I felt like he and I were a team, and we were going to solve this together. I'm a team player. I used to love teaming up with smart people back at work before I retired, and always with my husband. One day, I told him, I'm driving through an ice storm. This isn't Cupertino. <laughs> Drive carefully, he said, laughing. But what if an Apple customer can't get out to these stores or doesn't have time for this, I asked, skidding on the ice into yet another parking lot. Everyone has a car or someone to drive them. For a split second, I hesitated. And then, as if in a trance, I dutifully read him the next code. That night, I woke up in a cold sweat. What? If Lee Hook is the hacker, I wondered, heart racing. Unthinkable, I told myself, rolling over and willing myself back to sleep. Codes are working to remove viruses, he said the next day, but more codes are needed. There are new viruses, he said, uploading another scan. Remember, do not tell anyone what you are doing, because hacker can see your texts and emails. I won't. I was too embarrassed to tell anyone anyway. Every day, I lined up the receipts along the dining room table from one end to the other in chronological order by date of purchase by store and which credit card was used, keeping track of my expenditures on little post-it notes. Apple will reimburse you when work is done, he said again and showed me another scan. Spikes getting shorter, less piercing, more elliptical in shape, farther apart. On Friday afternoon, he said, I'll call you on Monday. I welcomed the time off. My boyfriend, John, came for dinner. There's no place for me to sit, he said. I can't move these, I explained. A virus has infected my computer. I need to keep track. So far, I've spent $16,000, and the hacker is still in there. I can see it on the diagnostic scans, but I can't discuss it with you for security reasons. I suggest you call Apple directly and verify your expenditures, John said. No need, I said. I've got this, I thought. We ate our shrimp gumbo side by side, cramped at a small corner of the table. On Wednesday, I told Lee Hook, I can't use my credit cards anymore. I've spent $21,600 and maxed out on my credit limit. When will this work be done? Soon, he said. Use your debit card now. He sounded impatient, distracted, less friendly. Okay, I sighed. This game wasn't fun anymore. Suddenly, the call was disconnected. 
I didn't have a number for him because he always called me. Said he was on a secure line, encrypted so the hacker couldn't see. I looked up the number for Apple support on the official Apple website and called it. I asked to be connected to technician Lee Hook, who, I explained, was working inside my computer to remove viruses, sending me out to buy Google Play cards. I am sorry. There is no technician here by that name, a female voice said. Apple would never ask to take control of your device and would never ask you to spend your own money to correct a problem. I thanked her and hung up. Bile rose in my throat. I looked at the pile of supermarket receipts lined up on my dining room table, totaling $21,600. I called the bank and closed my account a second time, canceled the debit and credit cards again. I called the police, who sent over a detective from the Internet Fraud Division. He photographed each Google Play card and contacted Google to ask if they could track the security codes. No, Google told the detective, once the cards leave the store, they are just like cash. The detective took my laptop to the forensics expert to look for evidence. He called the next day. The hacker left without a trace. He said, come, pick up your laptop. I'm afraid there's nothing more we can do. I picked up each painstakingly recorded transaction, along with my spent Google Play cards, and stacked them in a box, away in a closet. The dining room table looked naked. Lee Hook was indeed smarter than Apple, just as he told me. That day, I felt truly ashamed for falling prey to his machinations. Today, I am wondering about Lee Hook. Maybe he was desperate for money. Maybe dominating and duping a vulnerable, lonely widow excited him. Maybe it was just a game. I'll never know. Lee Hook, whoever you are and wherever you are, I should hate your guts. But you were so likable. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for teaching me what can happen when I give away my power and trust the wrong person. I believed you. Margaret, this is just an absolutely terrifying and absolutely brave story. I, um, my heart really goes out to you for, um, this happening to you because, good God, it's like the thing that we fear, um, so much. And you brought us with you on that quote unquote adventure. Um, and I think that one of the many remarkable things is, is the way that you end it. You know, I should hate you, but this was a very hard lesson learned. I guess I, one of the things I wonder is how long did it take you to get to that point where you were grateful for a lesson learned because that's that's a tough one a very long time yeah I am so sorry that you went through that it was a violation of trust I was violated yeah yeah Trust is everything. It is. It is. Without trust, what do we have? Yeah, I know. I'm trying to think what else to say about this because um, it's also an incredible act of generosity for you to share this story because, of course, you share some incredible vulnerability and again at a time when you were 
just barely trying to feel like you were had solid ground under you again. So um, it is a supreme irony, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, like just when we try and trust again and try and feel confident in ourselves and then something like this happens and um I don't know I could ask you about other fallout with your son and with John maybe do you want to let us know what happened with John after the fact just so we get caught up with your life a little bit perhaps well poor John we had just really begun going out together and to this day, he regrets that he didn't stop me. Mm. That when I said, I've got this, no need. Right. He, he respected my autonomy when he could have, he could have intervened. He could have saved me. In fact, he finally said, you know, if Herb were still alive, this never would have happened. It was his way of saying, I should have taken care of you. I wish I could have taken care of you. I wanted to take care of you. Yeah. And John is your husband now. Yeah. So it was almost harder for him than it was for me because he, he felt a certain responsibility for not doing more, saying more. And... uh for a long time, he didn't want me to tell anyone about this and certainly not share my story. You know, of all the letters and, and journaling that I did that was supposed to be private, this was the one thing that he would have preferred. Mm -hmm. He truly worried that if it got out there that I was so gullible that I would then be pray again that someone else would come and try to yeah to get me yeah you know that I was fair game out there right, in the right. world of scammers right yeah I think that that's absolutely a fear I mean I think that that's I that's exactly what's scary about it how long ago did this happen it happened in February of 2019 so there's the scary part that it could happen again but the worst part was the shame that I felt yeah. ashamed of myself. So it took months, years for me to try and understand how this happened to me. Where were the clues and why did I miss them? Yeah. And were they in plain sight? Yeah. And I just didn't see them. And why? Why did I want to believe this guy so badly? Right. And so you know, some of that came out in the writing, of course, in this final version. But I will tell you that a huge inflection point with me was on a return visit to this writing retreat with Jennifer. We were given a writing prompt in writing class, and the prompt was write about something that made you really uncomfortable. This was one month after this had happened. And I wrote this. That's really where I wrote this. I had written about it in my my daily love letters, but I wrote it as a complete chronicling of the event, event an event, a story. So I wrote it, and then at the, the end of the class, we are always given the opportunity to read aloud what we've written. It's not mandatory, but she'll also always ask, who would like to read what they've written out loud? And I guess for me, the inflection point was when my left hand went up. Yeah. <laughs> that was going to be my big question. Like, you've did I even Did I raise my hand? And the whole time I'm thinking, what are you thinking? What, yeah. what are you doing? What were you thinking? So there was, here's the thing. I needed to, I needed to tell this story. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. I needed to write it. Yeah. And then I needed to share it. I, I did ultimately what I needed to do. Yeah. Now, when I read it aloud, I was in a room full of, we were in Mexico at this retreat, and I was in a room full of people who mostly, who were strangers. I didn't, I had just met them for the first time. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And I'm reading this incredible disclosure 
to these strangers about myself. And I'm still thinking, what what are you doing? Why are you telling these people this about you? What are they going to think of you? And uh, But I kept going. And something extraordinary happened when I finished. Well, first of all, there was utter silence in the room. You could hear a pin drop. And I just sat there. And finally, one woman tentatively said, you have to share this story so it doesn't happen to other people. That's why you have to share this story. It's a cautionary tale. Yeah. So that was the first comment. Yeah. A few minutes later, the class was over and we're all filing out of the room. And uh, this sweet woman comes up and almost whispers in my ear, it's only money. It was only money. It's just money. God, I needed to hear that. Yeah. What a gift. Third woman. I didn't know her. I didn't know who she was. Stops me a few minutes later and says, you do know that because you wrote that and read it aloud, you're already healed. Wow. What did you think of that? I really thought about that for a long, long time. Yeah. And the truth of her words. Wow. And the absolute necessity to write and share your deepest, darkest secrets or as... Jennifer once said in class, write with the dark ink of your shame. Mm, God. You're giving yeah. me chills when you say that. Yeah. And to not do that makes us all sick. Because <laughs> we keep it inside and it just eats away at us. Yeah. So, yeah, to heal, you've got to get it out. You are... I, I'm speechless. <laughs> that that so encapsulates in a in a really tight and sharp sharp way what I instinctually gravitate to all the time and and try and get at with what I do here on this podcast which is to ask people to tell this stuff because that in itself also is, it's not the cautionary tale, it's the model to try and follow, to have the bravery to write it down. I think it's a two-part process because you nailed it. It's like, first I have to write it down, then I have to tell it. And those things can't happen until you're ready. And so that third woman, that is just, yeah, it's blowing me away. Did you feel healed at that point? I'm guessing no. I felt hopeful. Yeah, yeah. Hmm, Pandora. Pandora's box. <laughs> I will say that um, I am, by nature, a trusting person. Yeah. And I am, by nature, a joyful person. Yeah. And it was very, very hard being so sad all the time after my husband died when it was not my default character. I'm the songwriter. Yeah. I'm the clown. I'm funny. I'm joyful. I make people laugh. I make people happy, I think. <laughs> I write love letters, and so to be violated in both my joyfulness and then my trustfulness Trust, exactly. was kind of a double whammy. But if I may tell you, my memoir is titled And Always One More Time, mm -hmm. and it comes from the Maya Angelou quote, have the courage to trust love 
one more time mm-hmm. and always one more time. And it became the title of my book, and it actually is the whole arc of the story. It is about re- recovering trust in love, recovering trust in myself, finding joy again. Yeah. Well, that's all the more imbued through what you wrote here because you end with gave away my power and trust to the wrong person. I don't know why these steps, writing it down and then telling it does something. I mean, why would that do something? Those two things. But I think that there's something about the second of those steps sharing it, that somehow is part of the process of taking that power back and finding trust again. I want to hear what you think about that. That's so beautifully said. I love that. Thank you. I love that. You're your question about the two parts, the writing and then the telling. The writing we do for discovery and clarification and understanding. The telling we do to connect with other hearts and minds mm. to as an antidote to the terrible aloneness of life. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's it. And having, you know, those three women who responded to me at the retreat connected with me and my story, and I was no longer alone in my terrible trauma of the betrayal. I had allies. I had the understanding of others, empathy. Yeah. So with your Dare to Tell podcast, you know what that means. You are a healer. Oh, my God. It's what you do, apparently every month. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like what I do is I shine the light on and those who are doing it. And and that is this is such, oh, my God, a powerful example of that. Because it also says to me, he might have taken my money, which I also love that. It's only money. Now, it's also not to say that that's nothing. Like, that's a lot of money. Obscene. It was an obscene amount of money. Yes. Yes. We need to acknowledge that. And obscene, what could you do with that amount of money if you still had it? Yeah, yeah. It was obscene. And it was incremental. It was like the frog in the boiling pot of water. Yeah, yeah. It's it's happening so gradually. Right. The frog boils and dies. Yeah. It was like that. It was like sunk costs. I couldn't stop. I'd already invested so much. I know. I know you start going, mm. but the power of taking it back, of of telling the story is reclaiming your joyfulness and your trust. And my guess is you have a bit of a different radar about these things these days. Yes, I learned my lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. And of course, we don't learn from our successes. We learn from our failures. (laughs) All those little adages that come So that was my big failure, and I learned so much. Uh, Lessons we really would rather not learn. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. But there was so much more to it than that. I mean, God, just beautifully, powerfully written and and shown and shown through 
the bravery of telling because it is more than the cautionary lesson. And it takes a big, strong soul to do all of those steps. Thank you. Thank you so much. Another question, something you had mentioned to me that I was curious about, more in the craft category of writing this, um, when we had an initial conversation, you were talking about getting back into the mindset of where you were when this was happening to you so that you could go back and write it. And I just want to hear you describe that because I, I think that that's one thing I will say I struggle with is we feel like we learn a lesson and then you're like, let's just keep moving forward. We don't need to <laughs> go back and immerse ourselves in what that felt like then. But in order to tell the story effectively, you had to remember what it felt like. That is such a beautiful description of what all memoir is. Literally feeling it in your kishkas, in your body, feeling the the fright, maybe even the revulsion, whatever whatever it is was going on physically, emotionally, you know, as well as, you know, intellectually. I did have to re-experience the bile rising in my throat, that sick feeling, that racing of my heart when I had that thought, what if Lee Hook is the hacker? What if he is the hacker? And yet he was telling me the entire time, I'm the hacker. Don't assume I'm in Russia. Yeah. I could be anywhere. Yeah. I'm smarter than Apple. Did he ever work for Apple? Was he once an Apple employee stealing all their secrets? how to get into my computer. I mean, the feeling, the fright, the fright of it all. I had to feel it in order to write it. Yeah. I had to feel the shame. I had to feel the, even my my embarrassment, my embarrassment with John, my embarrassment with my son. Oh, I so didn't want to appear anything less than completely in control and competent in front of my child, the business about who's the parent, who's the child. And I'm the only parent he has left at this point. And so it's especially important, was very important and still is, that I be strong for my children because they don't mm -hmm. have a father anymore. So now I have to be the mother and the father. Mm -hmm. So there's all that. Yeah. And and so all of that comes up in the retelling or revising of the story. And in fact, with each reading or rereading, either aloud or just to myself. Yeah. And by doing that, you take us there with you. And by taking us there with you, you are no longer alone in it. Usually... I end my podcast by saying what was most daring about this. I feel like that's a lot of what we've been talking about, but I guess I'll just ask you anyways, what, what was most daring about this story for you? What was most daring about the experience or the writing of the, the story? The writing. The writing. Exposing my gullibility. Yeah. My my innocence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, taking the risk that anyone who hears or reads this is going to think, what is wrong with her? How could she let that happen? Kind of John's question, except it was, how could I let that happen? Because yeah. I'm the guy. <laughs> And I wanted so badly to be competent. Yeah. You know, particularly when it comes to technology and internet and these ever-evolving devices uh. that we're constantly having to adapt to and learn about and yeah. stay and, on top of. And trust. I mean, we have to trust them, too. Yeah, and we have to trust our own 
ability to figure things out and learn along the way. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, obvious that I wasn't born yesterday. I've lived most of my life before computers and the internet and Apple computers even existed. And so, you know, you would call me a late adapter, adopter, whatever it's called. Um, but both, both maybe, right? Adopter, adapter. <laughs> and yet I teach yoga to a lot of seniors who desperately want to be strong yeah. in all ways. Yeah, yeah. And I too would like to be mentally strong and technically competent and physically strong and all of these things that are harder and harder to do as we progress through life. And so all of this happened, you know, I was already a senior citizen, a widow, you know, over the hill. Mm. So I had to dare to tell and it was, and do it with complete self-disclosure and tell the story at my own expense. Mm, yes, I know. I know. That's why I had to have you on. I was like, this is too daring not to tell. I mean, I, I, I can't thank you enough for this. I mean, it's such a powerful conversation, and I love contemplating the process with you. Tell us again about your memoir and when it's coming out and any other reading or ways people might follow or get in touch with you? Well, the reason this memoir even exists, I have to say, is certainly because of Jennifer who planted the seed way back, way back, uh, you know, and helped me get started. Um, and secondly, Beth Kephart, who not only provided me with this blueprint because she wrote this fantastic book, but she became my writing coach, my next writing coach, and really helped me become a memoirist and mm. know the difference between a letter and a narrative. She is the one who said to me as the process unfolded, she said, this book has to get out there. Mm. It has to get out there. It's too important not to be read. And that gave me the the courage to pursue publication. And I found a publisher, Atmosphere Press, who I found out is rather selective, but felt that my book was publishing worthy. So we're right in the middle of production. And it should be finished and available in print, in ebook, and who knows, maybe an audiobook. Maybe. Maybe an audiobook, um, maybe in my voice, who knows? <laughs> Love if it. If you like what you heard Love today. It. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, by early to mid 2024. That is so cool and so exciting. And congratulations, because that is no small feat in itself to enter into that world. That in itself is it's a whole other thing. Um, Another leap of trust. Yeah, really. I know. It's hard to not have it. It's it's equally um, damaging to not have it. Oh. Oh. Worse. We perhaps. know people who don't yeah. trust yeah. ever, who don't trust anybody. What a sad state of affairs. Yeah. We have to, we do have to extend ourselves. Well, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Oh, thank you. This 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 experience has been um it's just taken me me to a new level of understanding my my own story. Yeah. The opportunity to think about it, talk about it with you, your evocative questions, thought-provoking questions. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for your story. My dear friend and the author, Susan Piver, talks frequently about the magic of opening your heart that comes from a simple practice, sitting and focusing on your breath for a little bit 
at the same time each day. I think there's a similar transformational magic, if you will, in the writing and reading of your story. Do I understand it? Well, in one aspect, yeah, I guess so. I've thought about it and processed it and I've moved on. But that doesn't always happen. And in a much deeper way, I have no idea how the very evasive transformation of things like healing and forgiveness do happen. And as I think Susan might also say, I'm not sure I want to. But I think it does begin with this idea of trust in the middle of the most unlikely of circumstances. And that is a risky endeavor. It's like something that can only be seen most clearly when your eyes are closed. I will put a link to Margaret Mandel's website in the show notes where you can read more about her and her forthcoming memoir, And Always One More Time, which will be out in 2024. That is it for this month's episode. I don't think I've got another bonus up my sleeve for this month, but who knows? Sometimes one pops up. I do, however, have a newsletter. And you know what? I have been thinking about changing the name of it. I feel like there's so many things called pause or press pause or time to pause. So I'm going to change the name. It'll be the same format, me musing over some unasked question or late breaking thought after the episode comes out. But I will now call it da, 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 the redo because not only does my monthly musing have to do with pausing and thinking after a thing, but also comes from the chance to start over, which is what we all do, or maybe have the opportunity to do in so many ways every day. I hope you will sign up for it at my website, Michelle Rado, spelled like redo.com. A huge thank you to my husband, Phil Rado, for his music that starts and ends each episode. You can hear more of what he has written on Spotify or Apple Music or at Bandcamp. And as always, my deepest appreciation to you for making it to the end of another episode and for daring to listen. Catch you next month. And nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground